Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chodner. My guest today is Steven Pinker, a professor of psychology at Harvard and the author of a new book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. It follows on the heels of his controversial bestseller, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. Both books offer a sweeping account of why Pinker believes the present is so much better than the past and why we have so much trouble wrestling with the notion of progress. Steve Pinker joins me now from Cape Cod. Steve, where in Cape Cod are you? Truro, Massachusetts, second to last town along the Cape. Well, now, no wonder you've written a book about how the world is good. Um, Thank you for coming on the program. I appreciate it. So for people who have not read either uh, Enlightenment Now or The Better Angels of Our Nature, um, you know, I'm going to follow up on this, obviously, but what is it that you're trying to get across and what is it that you think um, we kind of misunderstand about our current moment in relationship to our past? The heart of the book is a set of graphs showing that measures of human well-being have improved over time. Contrary to the impression that you might get from the newspapers that were living in a time of uh, epidemics and and war and uh, crime, uh, the curves show that humanity has been uh, uh, getting better, that we're living longer. We are fighting fewer wars and fewer people are being killed in the wars. Our rate of homicide is down. Violence against women uh, is down. More children are going to school, girls included. More of the world is literate. We have more uh, leisure time than our ancestors did. Diseases are being decimated. Uh, Famines are becoming rarer. Uh, So virtually anything that you could measure that you'd want to call human well-being has uh, improved uh, over the last two centuries, but also over the last couple of decades. And so, you know, there there are, I guess, a couple of possible critiques to what you're saying. One would be to sort of take issues with take issue with the statistics, and another would be to say the statistics st- the statistics I can't speak are not picking up on things that we should actually be measuring. It seems like a, a, a different sort of critique would also be. What are we supposed to take from that? I mean, you and I would both agree as kind of, um, you know, nice liberal secular people that uh, there are way too many people who live unfortunate lives. There are way too many people who are victims of wars. There are way too many refugees. Um, There's environmental destruction going on everywhere. Um, You look from Yemen to Puerto Rico, et cetera. Things are things are not good. So what 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 do you want to sort of get across other than things are better? What what lesson do you want us to draw? Or are you just trying to sort of set the record straight? You're not trying to get us to think differently about the way things are now. No, I'm absolutely trying to get people to, to uh, think differently, because this is not the first book that has tried to document the facts of progress. We had the, Matt Ridley's The Rational Optimist, Johann Norberg's Progress. There have been viral videos by Hans Rosling. Uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has been touting the improvements in global health and longevity. I put the facts of progress in the context of the ideas that made it possible. Because one has to ask, uh, why have things been getting better? Does the universe contain some mystical force or arc bending toward justice or, or dialectic that just makes things better and better over time? The answer is, is surely not. Um, I attribute it to particular ideas and values that came in around the time of the Enlightenment in the second half of the 18th century, and uh, that when, when they are um, embraced, make progress, uh, made progress possible in the past. And therefore, uh, if we embrace them now, they'll make future progress possible. And these, these ideals I uh, boil down to reason, science, and humanism. Reason 
that we should apply rationality to analyzing our situation and our problems as opposed to um, dogma, authority, charisma, gut feelings, science, uh, and that our we should consult our best understanding of reality rather than superstition and, and uh, folklore. Uh, and humanism, that we should prioritize the well-being of uh, sentient beings, especially uh, human beings, uh, rather than the glory of the nation or the, the, the uh, uh, spread of the faith or the, the triumph of, of a race or ethnic group. You, you mentioned the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and I think one critique of your of your book and, and your last book is essentially that it's a way of making um, people who are in positions of power or wealthy people now sort of feel good about where we are. Your book has gotten great praise from Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg. And a friend of mine, uh, you know, I told him I was going to talk to you and, and he, he proposed this as a question, which I thought was interesting, which is that if we were looking back. 150 years, say, to choose a point in time around the turn of the century. And someone said that the richest people in the country, um, you know, the sort of Rockefeller types, um, had said that some book about our current moment was really speaking to reality and what was correct and so on. We would probably look back on that with a certain bit of a jaundiced eye and that there is something that we should be skeptical of the fact that people like Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg, would, would feel so positively about this book that it's somehow understating aspects of reality maybe that we don't want to pay attention to. How would, how would you respond to that? Well, it, it doesn't seem like much of an argument. That is, if Bill Gates likes it, then, then, um, then that, that suggests that maybe it's not right. I, mean, I, don't really, I don't really see the logic of the objection. And Bill Gates does deserve credit because unlike philanthropists of the past, he didn't just use his fortune to get the naming rights of, of concert halls, but um, uh, applied a, a humanistic ethic, namely, how would this fortune go the farthest in making the most people better off and uh, decided that combating uh, infectious disease in the developing world would bring the greatest human life and happiness for uh, for the amount of money that was available. So if you praise him for that, uh, it, it's, it's praiseworthy. There are a lot of other things he could have done with the money. Oh yeah, no. I I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not trying to say that Bill Gates is a is a bad person or something. I I, I guess that it seems that I mean, you write in the book, for for example, you say, notwithstanding the habitual self-flagellation by Western intellectuals about re Western racism, it's non-Western countries that are the least tolerant. Um, it does seem that one of the things that you're trying to do in the book is that you, I mean, the the way that's phrased at least, is that self-flagellation is something that is not great, that we're maybe too hard on ourselves. And, and I guess what I'm wondering is, however, you, and this gets to sort of the Gates and Zuckerberg question is, whatever you think we are in relationship to what we were 100 years ago or 1000 years ago, um, it does seem you can take two approaches to that. One is that things are getting better and we should celebrate it. And the other is that, no, we really should be flagellating ourselves still, no matter what the circumstances were 100 years ago, because there are still so many problems with the world. Well, there are problems with the world, but um, self-flagellation doesn't make the problems any better. Um, that is, if I feel guilty about poverty in the developing world and I flagellate myself, um, I haven't saved any lives, I haven't fed any children, uh, we should analyze problems and solve them. And the, uh, I think the, the mindset behind the question, which mm -hmm. is, aren't rich people bad and aren't we compelled to uh, condemn rich people uh, and and condemn the status quo. Um, so I do argue uh, against that because that doesn't make anyone any better off. Yeah, no, I, I was not trying to imply that 
you know, what Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates likes means it's not good or that we should be going after rich people for liking a book or for being rich in and of itself. Not at all. I was trying to get at the sort of larger attitude that we take to these things. And it's interesting that you said that you don't think self-flagellation brings things about. I'm not sure that that's true. I mean, I think that the self-flagellation that we see in Western societies, because you're talking the, the quote I was reading was about Western societies, about sort of um, racism or misogyny, I think probably has had a role in helping ameliorate them. Well, uh, cer- certainly, just as individuals, we have to be self-critical. As a society, we must be self-critical as well. But we. Um, we should also realize that it's it's a quirk of the human moral sense that if you make sacrifices, if you uh, flagellate yourself, which by the way, in practice means flagellating other people in your society, uh, there aren't that many people who say I'm a, a racist or a sexist. They're basically condemning you know all the other guys in their society, uh, but simply confessing, um, flagellating, putting on hair shirts, making conspicuous sacrifices that helps our social capital in our peer group, it doesn't make people better off, other people better off. Uh, it doesn't cure disease. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't topple tyrants. Um, so the point of, of uh, propelling moral progress is obviously not to accept the status quo, but it's to identify problems and identify the solution to the problems, not to identify villains and flagellate the villains. So that is, a, that is a difference. And by the way, the comment about the uh, self-flagellation of the West pertains specifically to a, a set of worldwide opinion polls where the citizens of various countries were polled in terms of whether they believe in uh, gender equality, whether they believe in rights for religious and racial minorities. And it was simply the fact that it's actually the Western societies that are the um, the, the least prejudiced. And there are actually countries like India where people have contempt for those of other faiths. Uh, and so it's no, not an excuse for the, the racism and ethnocentrism that remains, but a diagnosis that says that this is a peculiar problem of the West is just factually wrong. I mean, this is, I think, part of human nature that we tend to uh, disrespect groups other than our own. And it is one of the gifts of the Enlightenment that we are uh, pushing back against that. By the way, and it's all countries that are improving, just some have gone farther than others. Let me let me ask you about kind of, I think the two, a lot of people think the two biggest threats to kind of um, the sort of steadily improving, even if insufficient progress we've been making are nuclear weapons and global warming. And the first is nuclear weapons are something that we've made via scientific ingenuity. And global warming is a result of um, many things, but one of them is kind of um, economic growth and um, kind of modernizing societies. So, and and I think that you and I would both agree that they're both um, existential threats to, to everyone. And so I guess I'm wondering, how do you fit that into your, your larger idea about sort of science and progress and what they've what they've offered the world well, certainly the um, uh, extraction of, e- of energy mainly by, via fossil fuels has uh, until now been an enormous boon to to uh, humankind it has led to the um, uh, the abolition of slavery, to the emancipation of women, to the education of children, to lengthening lifespans, to richer experiences. 
but obviously it can't continue in the, the way it has through massive burning of fossil fuels. And it's true that if in a uh, hundred years time, the planet is despoiled because uh, no one did anything to curb greenhouse gas emissions and just continued with business as usual, then at that point you can kind of raise the philosophical question, well, would we have been better off if we stayed in a, a lifestyle of the Middle Ages, had a life expectancy of 30, a literacy rate of 10%, but at least we wouldn't have had global warming. And you know, that, I, don't know, I don't know how you would answer that question, uh, but we're not at the point at which that question has to be answered. Likewise, if there was a uh, a nuclear holocaust, then uh, whoever survived it, looking back, can uh, raise the question, was it all worth it if, if nuclear physics eventually led to nuclear weapons? But um, I, I don't think we're at the point um, where we have to pose the question in that way. I think we're at the point where we have to say, well, having enjoyed the benefits of science and technology, how do we uh, avert these potential catastrophes? How do we decarbonize? How do we de denuclearize? And, and uh, put our rhetorical energy uh, into uh, correcting a course that we could go on if uh, we're not sufficiently aware of it. Well, right. I mean, I, I mean, I, maybe it's worth distinguishing between nuclear weapons and, and global warming at this point. But um, I, I certainly don't want to imply that, you know, people in 1900, uh, you know, what they did to modernize their societies in some way... Um, should be looked at differently because in the long run, it led to more carbon being in the atmosphere, which they didn't know about. And so therefore we all should have, you know, at in year 1000, you know, kept doing whatever. Um, Burning wood. Yeah. But that's not what I'm trying to imply, but it does seem to me that um, it does seem to me that the threat of global warming, even if it hasn't realized its worst potential yet, it, it is worth thinking about that. It's scary enough and bad enough. And, there's a possibility at least that it could lead to such catastrophic outcomes that it does feel like even if we don't want to judge individual people hundred or a thousand years ago, it does seem like maybe we should change how we think about the notion of, of progress a little bit. It clearly requires some changes, but the change that it requires, at least so I argue in the, the, the fairly extensive discussion of climate change that I have in, in uh, the book, uh, is that we have to figure out how to get the uh, greatest human benefit with the least environmental cost, in particular, the least emission of greenhouse gases. gases. In, in, in fact, the zero emission of greenhouse gases, in fact, negative uh, emission, because we've got to pull some of that CO2 out of the atmosphere uh, at some point during this century. So the way to deal with it is that not to say, well, was progress a big mistake? So I, I think that just um, doesn't give us a way to go forward. Uh, it, it leads to what are probably imponderable questions, but rather, um, how do we continue a process that has already begun of uh, extracting energy from the uh, universe with less uh, carbon emissions? And in fact, there has been a decarbonization process as the world shifted from uh, coal to oil to gas and then to renewables and nuclear, if that process continues. Uh, it has... No, come nowhere near to the level that it that uh, we need to bring it to, but that is the it, it suggests that that the uh, technological progress that we that we've enjoyed is not synonymous with uh, with uh, flaming carbon. That we've already begun a trajectory away from carbon emissions while our standard of living has improved, and uh, the task facing us is to uh, accelerate that process. It it seems sort of. Um unknown whether nuclear massive nuclear war will break out um 
we've had you know um, atomic bombs drop before, but we haven't had two countries kind of lobbing missiles at at each other. Um, and sort of what the what the result would be for humanity. It and and I don't know what the odds are. I don't know if India and Pakistan are going to go to war, or the United States and North Korea. But it it does seem like again that we've put ourselves in a position where the unthinkably awful is possible and that whether the contingency plays out or doesn't play out, it's worth thinking about how we think about what progress is because we've put ourselves at such a huge threat. And whether that's a 10% chance or a 20% chance or whatever, how you end up flipping the coin and what ends up happening, that that does seem like we that should call into question a little bit how we think about it. Well, it it does. It, and so I, I would say that nucle- the invention of nuclear weapons has been our species' biggest blunder and um, probably occurred as a result of a, n- a number of historical contingencies surrounding this World War II. Namely, uh, we uh, rushed to develop them before uh, the, the Nazis did. And it's quite possible that if uh, there was no Hitler, there'd be no uh, nuclear weapons today. Um, there are uh, horrific but not species-ending um, scenarios such as uh, an exchange of a few nuclear weapons, which would be uh, unspeakably awful, but not necessarily, um, not even necessarily worse than some of the atrocities that our species has gone through in the past, like the European wars of religion and the uh, in the um, conquests of, of uh, Genghis Khan. So yes, at the extreme end, there uh, there's a kind of damage that we never had to deal with uh, in the past. That is a nuclear winter, uh, and then there are a number of other possibilities that are uh, horrific, but not existential, and that clearly we ought to prioritize uh, avoiding. And in that regard, I'm not saying that we should um, uh, accept the historical course or the the trajectory that we're on, particularly the trajectory that has recently been uh, bent by the current uh, Trump administration, uh, that this very much should be uh, publicized more than it is uh, in the last presidential election, for example, it figured pretty much not at all. And instead, there was enormous uh, discussion of relative trivialities like um, like terrorism, like police shootings, like uh, email servers, uh, like economic inequality, all of which are, are issues. But compared to the threat of nuclear war, they're, they're uh, less consequential. And uh, I would like to see a greater discussion of our nuclear strategy, our nuclear posture, our nuclear weapons trajectory. Just about your larger argument, I mean, would would nuclear war and a calamity like that sort of change your view of, I guess I'm asking what would falsify your argument in your mind that if nuclear war broke out and, you know, the conditions were horrific everywhere, would you say, I, I mean, would you sort of say, oh, I attribute part of that to sort of enlightenment thinking and our focus on science? Or would you say that that was actually a betrayal of it? Well, it is. It would be it's some of each. That is the know-how to wreak that destruction was clearly a, a product of science. But the the value system that allowed it to happen would be a uh, uh, the, the most flagrant contradiction one could imagine of uh, humanism. That was certainly the historical uh, genesis in the um, ideology of Nazism, which is pretty much the opposite of humanism in, in seeking the glory of the uh, of the race over the interests of uh, individual people, and of the various escalations and um, saber rattling and, uh, and and conflicts over uh, territory and ideology that that would have taken the world 
uh, to that place. I want to, you mentioned the current administration, which I want to ask you about. And um, I don't want this question to sound like Trump has somehow invalidated all these statistics that you have in your book because you're not, you know, I'm not trying to argue that and I don't believe that. And Trump has not yet reversed much of the progress of the modern world, uh, even even though he's he's not a great president. I, I guess what I'm wondering is we're a country that I think likes to think that it was um, impacted by Enlightenment ideas and has used those ideas to prosper and become the richest, most powerful country on earth, as uh, politicians never tire of never tire of saying. Has Trump's election shaken you in any way about how you view America and our embrace of those ideas? And I, I ask about Trump specifically because he himself is such a rejection of them in so many ways in terms of who he is as a person, almost to an unimaginable degree, um, and which I think is part of the reason why people were so shocked, myself included, that that he won. And so I'm wondering how that's how that's kind of changed the way or altered the way maybe you look at the United States or other countries that pride themselves on on being, you know, enlightened. Well, yes, and the in many ways the United States is not at the forefront of. Uh, the Enlightenment Project, even though the, the American Declaration of Independence and Constitution were um, the earliest and greatest gifts of the Enlightenment. So the, the uh, United States was conceived as an Enlightenment nation, but it all, always entertained um, counter-Enlightenment um, forces of um, cultures of honor, of manly self-defense, of um, kind of millennial, uh, quasi-religious, messianic role of the United States in particular as the indispensable nation, the city upon the hill, uh, both very counter-enlightenment notions. And uh, Trump himself is quite obviously a, 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 an exponent of counter-enlightenment ideas. I mean, this was most obvious when, when uh, he was influenced by Steve Bannon, who explicitly cited some crackpot European fascists of the first decades of the 20th century, uh, who were... who almost set themselves in opposition to the Enlightenment. And and indeed, many of Trump's themes, such as nationalism, such as the the, the, the racialism that is always lurking behind his, um, his comments, uh, such as a withdrawal from international cooperation, such as uh, protectionism as opposed to uh, international commerce. These are all deeply counter-Enlightenment ideas. And so it's certainly... Uh, it, it was for me in the course of writing the book, and, and the, the Trump election occurred in the, the middle of the process, um, it certainly uh, represented a bigger pushback of counter-enlightenment forces than, than I would have liked to, to, to see in terms of the, uh, the, the progression of history. Um, it didn't shock me in the sense that uh, I didn't believe that the West or the United States had ever been um, all in for Enlightenment values. There's always been uh, a, uh, a tension between Enlightenment and counter-Enlightenment values. But I, I have to admit that I, I did not expect him to be elected, and I did not expect the counter-Enlightenment pushback to be as successful as it was. And the sort of counter-Enlightenment pushback, as you call it, which we see with Trump and we see in um, we see varieties of it throughout Europe and we see varieties of it um, – through the Middle East and South Asia and East Asia and, and all around the world, um, to what to what extent um, are you worried about that as a threat, a serious long term threat to the progress that you're detailing, or do you see it as unlikely to be more than a hiccup? And and the just before you answer, I mean, one thing that I think is interesting about sort of um, whether Trump or Brexit or some of the 
you know, European type strongman figures is they're they're specifically seem they specifically seem focused to the degree that Trump is focused on getting out of or taking down the institutions that I think people like yourself give a lot of credit for in terms of doing all these things that you think have made the world a better place. Uh, indeed, and um, I think I would see it as somewhere between a, uh, a hiccup and a reversal. Um, the fact that that um, authoritarian populists have gained control of uh, uh, a number of countries, including the United States, is uh, is certainly worrisome. Um, and and indeed, uh, real damage could be done. The the uh, nuclear war being the most obvious example, but also a um, corroding of the system of international norms that deserves. Uh, much of the credit for reducing uh, warfare, the uh, pushback against democracy, um, and and all all of the other threats that we're uh, we're all too well aware of. Uh, the long term trajectory: there are some forces that that uh, are are um, pushing back against it. One of them is just sheer demographics. Authoritarian populism is far more popular among uh, old people than young people. It, uh, drops off uh, like a cliff. I, I have a graph in the book that plots support for Trump, for European populism, and for Brexit. And all three curves are uh, uh, kind of cliff-shaped, where millennials just um, have not really have not fallen in love with populism in the way that uh, aging baby boomers and silent generation types have. So that that's uh, one reason to sus- to suspect that over the long term, this is not the, the wave of the future. The other is that there really has been a process spanning uh, many decades, at least uh, 50 years, of liberalization across the world. This is something that's v- visible in the World Values Survey, where uh, every generation has become more tolerant than the one that, that uh, preceded it. Uh, the progress has been uneven across regions of the world. There's just no question that Western Europe is more liberal than uh, the Middle East and North Africa. But the uh, the, the tide has lifted all the boats so that a uh, 20-something in the Arab world today is in many ways more liberal than a Swede in the early 1960s, as hard as that is to believe. Now, that's a, a force that has been pushed along by affluence, by education, by connectivity, by mobility, by all of the force, cosmopolitan forces of uh, modernity. Um, to the extent that this is a, uh, a real process, it's unlikely to go into reverse overnight. In, in general, younger people, more connected people, better educated people uh, just don't subscribe to the same kind of racism and sexism and homophobia uh, and nationalism as their elders. And and you don't sort of think that that's a change that will happen with generations in the sense that when the millennials become 75, they're going to be complaining about immigrants coming over. Or <laughs> yes, right. Like the old, uh, the old saying that uh, if you're not a... A socialist at 25, then you have no heart. And if you are a socialist at 55, you have no head. Um, and uh, no, no one knows who said it first, but attributed to many people. Uh, it turns out to be false. As a, as a demographic fact about um, uh, attitudes, that is, it is not the case that as people get older, they get steadily more uh, conservative. So it's much more likely that people carry their values with them as they age. And that as one cohort replaces another, the population as a whole shifts. You mentioned connecti- connectivity before about one of the things that was um, 
kind of uh, making making things go in the right direction. Have you? Uh, I asked you about Trump, but I mean, have, have you, along with along with Trump, thought about connectivity in the internet and the effect it's having on our society, and sort of had a different or perhaps less positive take on it than you did several years ago? Well, we are, that, certainly we are seeing the the uh, dark side of connectivity in the exploitation of, of connectivity to um, uh, uh, magnify divisions, the possibility of um, immersing yourself in, in uh, ideologically like-minded communities. Uh, well, well, but since some of these drivers are so new, like social media, uh, the, the explosion of social media is, is less than a decade old, we don't yet know how uh, societies are going to mount an immune response to them or, or, or countermeasures. Uh, any solution to a problem will, will itself raise new problems, which take time to solve in their turn. And uh, previous technological developments, such as mechanization and uh, uh, steam power, the automobile, um, often brought uh, horrible disruptions when they first emerged before society uh, diagnosed what was happening and uh, pushed back with with, uh, countermeasures. Uh, that's starting to happen with social media, as uh, Zuckerberg, for example, vowed to uh, fix Facebook as his, uh, as his yearly project. We don't, uh, uh, and I, I like to think that isn't completely disingenuous, and it won't be a complete failure. But as we start to even identify it as a problem, we can um, start to think about uh, how to combat it. So the, the pessimistic view that uh, we're going to get more and more insular, more and more polarized. Is, assumes that even having recognized the problem, all possible countermeasures will fail. Now, maybe they'll fail, but uh, you know, maybe they won't fail. Steven Pinker, the book is Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Isaac. Thanks for having me. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs, with help today from Stephanie Geyer-Stevens in Cape Cod. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Are you looking for more great Slate shows? Check out Mom and Dad are Fighting. Rebecca Lavoie, my friend Gabriel Roth, and Carvel Wallace discuss all aspects of parenting from toddlers to teens. They answer listener questions and talk through parenting issues in the news. Get it every Thursday wherever you find your podcasts. 